the past 10 years trying to figure out, I really enjoy doing this. I really like talking to you guys. Yeah, me too. You know, Hell like, yeah. this is awesome. Hell you know, yeah. like, it's just, it's, it's fun. We're all just trying to have a good time. And Hey everyone, welcome to the Dylan and Joe Basement Podcast. I'm your host, Dylan. This is your host, Joe. Hey everybody. And today we got a special topic and a special guest, but we'll get to that in a second. So Joe, what are some of the, what are we going to talk about today? Boom, we're talking about a huge topic today. It's very steeped and also angry ideas, brilliant ideas, the future of science, the folly of science. We're talking about nuclear power and specifically nuclear fission and nuclear fusion and what that means in the world in the past and going forward today. How does that address one of the biggest problems in the world, Joe? And what I mean by biggest problems is since the dawn of time, we have struggled with how to make power, how to have renewable energy and things like that. Where does nuclear power come into that? Well, nuclear power is one of our most modern forms of energy. I mean, if you're looking back into the past, like you said, Dylan, energy has always been an issue. It's how we live. We consume things to gain energy, to survive. When we're breathing in oxygen, we're using cellular respiration to get energy that way. We need energy all the time to be alive. And whether it comes from lighting a fire and cooking food and using it for light and warmth back in the prehistoric times, all the way up to now, we're going to have to run the entire power grid of a nation. Energy is a huge, huge deal, and it's how we all survive. And unlike back when we were just burning wood, we, we graduated to burning dinosaurs and burning coal to get our energy. But nuclear power is our one of our newest versions of it, and it takes the initial power that comes from what's within an atom and the forces within it and using that energy to power our electric grid. And that's it. And it, and it really kind of uh, just adds the notion of net power gain where you get something, what you put into it and what you get out of it. Nuclear power is, is still a lot in, a lot out, but it's a lot less in and a lot more out than coal uh, or wood or, um, or gas. Yeah. Give them the old in out. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so. We're going to let you folks know a little bit about nuclear fission and fusion so that we at least know what we're talking about here. And then we'll get into the ideas of how it's gone through history and how it might go in the future. But this week in particular, it's a very special week. It's not just your usual week at the basement. We have our first guest that we've ever had in the podcast here. Uh, he's a longtime friend of ours. We've known him for many years. Uh, he's an engineer and he knows a lot more about the inner workings of the factories, power plants, what have you, than we do. So we figured we'd bring him on and uh, have him shoot back and forth with us and join the basement with us. We have Andrew Thrain here today. Say hi to the folks, Andrew, would you? 
How's it going, everybody? My name is Andrew Thrain, as Joe uh, mentioned. Known uh, Joe and Dylan for, uh, man, probably what, it's almost got to be 15 years now since uh, the early days. Um, went to Purdue for mechanical engineering. That's my background. Work in uh, automation and manufacturing facilities now. A uh, little bit of uh, education on power plants in school and then a lot of, you know, just experience in factory work, inner workings and things like that. So really, really excited to be with you guys tonight. Uh, we're excited to have you, man. I really appreciate having you on and we couldn't ask for a better first guest than you. So we're glad that you uh, agreed to sign <laughs> up and prattle on with us on the uh, site today. Man, that's I awesome. I made- uh, didn't, didn't realize I was the first guest on here. That's uh, really exciting. <clears throat> Who better can we ask for? You're number one. <laughs> Hell yeah, there we go. Number one. Yeah. Let's go, baby. <clears throat> Walk the bullet. Besides the, uh, the, the mice and the critters that run around our basements, uh, Andrew is absolutely our first human guest. I want to point that out. <laughs> good to say about anything, I'm sure. <laughs> So um, maybe it's a good time to let Andrew tell us what uh, what is nuclear fission and what is nuclear fusion. What do you think? <laughs> Absolutely not. Perfect. Perfect, because that's uh, definitely, definitely something I know a lot about. Um, so I, my background in that, basically fission is where you're joining, or sorry, separating atoms to create energy. Things like uranium that we're all familiar with, you can uh, blast lasers at and blow them apart, blow the atoms apart of those metals, those heavy metals, and they can separate and create lots of energy that way. Uh, with fusion, you're basically doing the opposite. You're compressing some matter into a really, really dense material and adding tons of heat, and you're trying to fuse those. Uh, fuse those molecules and when that happens or atoms rather and when that happens you're basically creating tons of heat and power that way so uh, that's kind of the difference from kind of a mechanical perspective uh the chemistry part of it i can't comment all that much on i mean that is that is the basically exactly what we're talking about today you couldn't have put it any cleaner than that i think i'll just describe to to the folks here just the difference between the two of them so that we're going on and we can kind of differentiate talking about fission versus fusion because although both of them use the power of the atom's nucleus or subatomic power it, they're not the same thing even though they generate a lot of power either way so i'm just gonna differentiate that real quick for us folks and then we'll be able to move on and know what the hell we're talking about here so the reason why nuclear power works so well is because of the strong nuclear force so that force that keeps protons and neutrons so closely packed in together is what we want to tap into because what we know about energy is that it can't be created or destroyed, but it's all, obviously always distributing through a system. If you can create enough force to split apart that atom, the energy released is immense. So as we're talking about today, that has to do with nuclear fission. So fission is taking a heavy element, like Andrew said, which means it, it's not heavy in the sense we talk about it, like it's a barbell. It's heavy because we say it has so many protons and neutrons that it's a very heavy element compared to one that's very tiny. Obviously, they're all insanely tiny. If you shoot a neutron at an unstable element, it'll tend to break apart. That's exactly how nuclear fission is accomplished. If you shoot a neutron at uranium-235, 
it becomes uranium-236, meaning it has one extra neutron, one more than it needs. It immediately becomes unstable. On our monolith episode, we talked about the fact that elements can be unstable, which doesn't just mean that they're hard to hold in your hand. It means it's hard to keep them existing in the universe. We know it. So when it becomes unstable, it splits into two other elements. That's not the only thing that happens. Because of that split is being forced upon it, trying to even itself out, a massive amount of energy comes out of it, as, long, as well as three neutrons that are shot off into the distance. So nuclear fission, not only is there a massive amount of energy that's released when that happens, there's also three spare neutrons that go flying off. And the amount of power we're getting from nuclear fission isn't just that singular atomic interaction. We want a lot of that to generate a lot of energy. And that's where you get a nuclear chain reaction, which is what we think about when we think about nuclear fission is chain reactions. So when that neutron adds to the original uranium atom and it splits into two, it sends three more neutrons flying. And every time that happens, three more go flying, three more go flying. It's a domino effect. So it's a chain reaction of multiple atoms splitting apart and creating all this massive energy. And if you can harness that energy that is going out of control, then you can do amazing things that ranges from powering a city to leveling a city, depending on how you want to use that. But it's generally the same concept going forward there. <clears throat> that's right. It's all about that strong interaction, folks. And that's called the with the uh, Coloma, Coloma Force, I think I was reading. So again, to just, just to help understand, because I learned this five minutes ago, um, is <laughs> fission is fighting the Coulomb force that's trying to hold, hold atoms uh, or atomic nuclei together. And fusion is trying to smash those into each other and break down that outer fence. Dylan just said it perfect because it's the, it's the fighting against those forces that's able to generate that much energy. Because if you're able to break that bond, you know, you're able to release all this immense energy. And fusion is the exact opposite. So you have to take very, very small, relatively, uh, atoms. So it's only hydrogen, which only has one proton and one neutron. And you're trying to smash them together to fuse them together. Now, that's a lot more difficult to do than to break it apart when you have an unstable heavy atom. Because picture putting one more block on the Jenga tower if it's already falling over. That's like fission. You're adding that little element, and then it all comes crashing down. For fusion, you're trying to take <clears> two <throat> Jenga blocks and push them into one block. It takes a lot more energy to do it, but you can get a lot more energy release than you do. Because when two hydrogen atoms smash together and fuse, now you're releasing much more energy than fusion even because you're fighting the force. I mean, picture how much effort it takes to take two strong magnets, take the opposite poles and push them together. That's hard with your hands. It's trillions of times harder to do that with atoms because they naturally want to repel off each other, much like a magnet. But if you can make it super, super hot, as hot as the center of the sun and form a plasma, it's a lot easier to get them to fuse together. And when you do, it just creates a massive amount of energy. So either way, they're both insane forms of finding energy that happen within the world that we're always interacting with. One of them is breaking them apart. One of them is fusing them together. Fusion releases much more energy. And that's why our sun works. It's the exact same thing that happens in our sun. Our sun is having a nuclear fusion reaction every single day of our lives on the most massive scale we can understand. So not only is it mashing together those hydrogen atoms and forming helium and a ton of energy, it's mashing together so many elements in the core of it that it's starting to add together all kinds of atoms. Then you get an atom that has 
30 protons and 30 neutrons as it smashes together. And you start to form super heavy elements that we have on Earth. Things like iron, gold, and even uranium are only forged in the center of stars until we have now. All the iron we have on Earth had to be smashed together at the amount of times that hydrogen would take to become the heavy element iron. And only after <clears throat> that many years can we get it. So that's fission. And you're and mentioning, you're mentioning uh, all, all the points kind of uh, centralized into two things. One of them requires heavy elements, one of them requires light ones. So fusion right. is like the hydrogen bomb. Think of a, the biggest explosion in the world, which was the Tsar Bomba in the 50s or 60s, something like that by the Russians. That's going to um, come up again. It is. I know. And uh, we'll get there. All right. So, but anyways, um, um, that's a hydrogen. Hydrogen's lighter than, say, uranium, which is yeah. heavier. So, so fission is a heavier element. Fusion is a is a is a lighter element, like like uh, like you said, like um, hydrogen. Like hydrogen. <clears throat> one thing I'm really glad that Dylan pointed out that one is really geared towards heavy metals, and the other one's more like light gases. That comes hugely into play and in behind the motivations of why when we get into the different ways of generating power, the research behind it, because there's a huge motivation to move towards these readily available materials like hydrogen and away from mm. the radioactive materials like uranium and things like that. So i um, glad you brought that up early on in the show, Dylan. Well, no problem. Joe hinted at that, but that's uh, that's definitely important. Holy crap, I didn't think of that as far as resources go, because you forget, like, where do you get uranium? But Where do you so. get uranium? Where do you get hydrogen? I mean, hydrogen, two parts of that, one part oxygen is a whole lot of that around the world well and these need helium as well and where do you get the fuck do you get helium um and uh when we have this done the clowns will be happy so the balloon <laughs> industry will be booming <laughs> yes, invest in invest now invest now <laughs> the helium requires a lot of control with rods and that type of stuff to make sure it's it doesn't get out of control and we'll talk about that later but fusion if we're if a company in say france or maybe china can do it um it's almost self-sustainable and lower risk than fission which is pretty cool Absolutely. um and the sun the different you know the big deal with the sun and being a giant fusion reactor and really any star is that there's a fucking ton of pressure pressure can replace heat that also generates heat so the more pressure you have the, the more you can change that equation and andrew probably knows more about that than i do um but uh that's what i've learned that's absolutely right that's that's why that fusion is accomplished in the sun it's not just because of the heat of the sun i mean the heat of the sun only has to do with the amount of pressure that's in there to start a star you have to have so much mass and pressure that it heats up to the point where you can start having a fusion reaction. I mean, it's almost like the pilot light of a star is the pressure that it takes to make a fusion reaction, which is why, as Dylan noted, it's so difficult to recreate on Earth because we don't have the mass of the sun to crush down to start our own reaction. We have to start it on our own, which means creating that much heat without anywhere near that much pressure because we just can't accomplish that on Earth. Yep. And this is, I forget, does anyone have the number? I mean, like, the, uh, the 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 fusion reactors that are in place in in that small tiny town in France as well as the the one in China, um, isn't it like two hundred million degrees or something? Yeah, for some time we'll we'll get into this when we talk about the, the reactors. Right. It's so hot that we literally have a part of the Earth which is inside the reactor which is the same temperature as the sun, which is insane to me that we can insane. have something that hot on Earth and we don't all die immediately. Yeah. 
Wow, that's an unbelievable point. I had no idea it was actually as hot as the sun. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, it has to be. Or fusion's not possible. So it's not only that, yeah, it has to be as hot as the sun. It is there. We contain the point. I mean, this is what we're talking about today, folks. This is the magic of nuclear fission and fusion. It's like using the world in a way that we would never have understood 100 years ago, but it's a massive impact on the whole world. And I think that on that note, we can kind of tap into the history of nuclear power mm-hmm. and how we got to where we were today before we're going to talk about what's going on right now and <clears> why we might want to take it easy on nuclear power or kind of lean forward into it and think this could be a great thing for the future. Totally. So let's do it. So um, Joe, do you know where we're going to start with this one? Cause I don't um, know how far back we go with this mm-hmm. stuff. Is this a, we da Vinci idea. Is this a, is this a, did Jesus come up with this or did uh, someone like Oppenheimer really be the, the brains behind this whole entire thing? And well, was that fission all... or was that fusion or was that physics? Well, it is physics, but like, who's really the dude who really made this concept? Who invented atomic energy? Well, I think we all, <laughs> Jesus was an alien. So he definitely knew about this. He just chose not to tell us because he had all the knowledge of all the things before. Mm-hmm. the world happened and all his powers there but as far as we know on earth um people had been understanding the idea of how particles work in physics i mean chemistry goes far enough back that people started really dealing with it in the 1700s but that came upon the idea of the energy that's inherent in an atom and andrew you might know a little bit more about this than i do because i took very little physics um but the very idea that you can transfer the, uh, the different types of energy in a math equation. So I never understood this until I first learned it is that you can transfer over uh, different types of energy, whether it's kinetic energy, thermal energy, or electromagnetic energy, you can say, well, this many BTUs can be converted completely over into this many kilowatts and completely over into this many, you know, whatever else. The idea is that you had to work this all out mathematically as a concept before it could ever be put into practice. Yeah, so um, that really gets into like the fun- basic fundamentals of thermodynamics. So uh, pretty much that's true what you said. Uh, in a perfect world, you can trans- transfer energy uh, from one state to another. Um, but in practice, what's really interesting, uh, you get uh, byproducts of those interactions, reactions, and you end up with something called entropy, which is basically where you're losing energy when you have these transfers of state. Um, so, and that's, that's entropy is a really interesting topic just in itself, because basically um, kind of the general idea is when, let's say the big bang goes off and there's some amount of energy in the system at that point, the, en- the amount of energy in the system is, continually decreasing due to entropy from the beginning of time all the way to the end of time. So like billions, trillions of years from now, there, the, eventually there'll be no energy, theoretically there'll be no energy left in the, in the system. So pretty cool that's topic to, uh, yeah. there. <clears throat> that's referred to as the heat death of the universe, which we might want to do a podcast on in the future to scare the shit out of everybody, which is, at some point, like Andrew said, entropy will rule the system and there will be no energy to go around and everything will be so separate from each other that there will be just ice cold all over maybe yeah uh on december 21st 2020 <laughs> coming up 
Get the five. It's all happening in five days, people. So the big great awakening, entropy is here. Just kidding. All right. So I, 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 you, you set that one up. I had to do it. It was just too funny. We've been talking about monoliths that are made by humans. And Andrew, I don't know if you saw the monoliths in Utah and that stuff. It's, it's a rivet job by some dude who had some extra stainless steel. So, so. Oh, no, I did. Oh, is that, wait, that's the, like, uh, the towers that appeared in the desert? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah I did see a little bit about that, but um, I didn't get to see the quality of the craftsmanship of these things, unfortunately. That's so good. <laughs> The news we will tell know. you that this came from another planet, and then you zoom in on it, and there's the first one had had had. had I give them credit; they were stainless rivets, which means they spent like a dollar more on the package. But um, the second one that showed up in Romania was like tack welded, really like like I would. Nah, actually, I give myself more credit than that. But when you're welding a seam like that, you can burn through really bad. But the whole point is, the same people who are going about that are going about December 21st, in you know what five days, um, and that's why I brought that up because you said entropy and the death of the universe, and some people think that's going to happen soon. Uh, a not-so-famous physicist who should be a lot more famous is a woman uh, who's an Austrian-Swedish physicist named Lisa Meitner, and she is the first one to ever work out provably in an equation that the possibility of nuclear fission definitely works. Now, at this time, no one has done this in a lab, and people might have thought the idea in their heads, but it wasn't provable. She proved it to such a degree that she was able to convince a team of nuclear physicists, which were the earliest nuclear physicists, some of them we know of because it's such an early science. And that's a guy who is named Otto Hahn, who's a German physicist. Now she is making her writings and talking to his assistant who was able to convince Otto Hahn to make his team work on this idea. And he's able to perform the first ever nuclear fission test in his laboratory that proves that it is possible to work. And we are off to the races. It's 1930. Now the world knows nuclear fission is possible. And there's an immense amount of power that can be released in an atom. And if we know our history a little bit, 1930 is tapping on the door of a major world event that uh, happens to wrap up into this. So a couple of years later, as the project is getting off the ground, another scientist from Germany that we might be familiar with named Albert Einstein. Have you heard of him? Einstein? Yes. Yes, yes I have. Thank you. Thank you. Danke. Danke. Anyways, Danke dish. Huge scientist. Obviously, still today, he's the prototype for a famous physicist. And <clears throat> his equations have been so important. He was actually a huge proponent to uh, Lisa Meitner and said that she should be more famous. In fact, when a magazine, a Time magazine posted a magazine about his birthday, he wrote in and complained and said, you didn't make one about Lisa Meitner's birthday, so I'm not going to talk to you folks and told them to go fuck because they wouldn't talk about her because she was a woman in 1930. They're not going to take her seriously, even though she's the one who came up with the equation that made it possible. So Einstein realizes that fission is possible. And because of the fact that they are now uh, taking over Europe, we're talking about Germany at this point, is taking people from all other countries and they're shipping them off. Einstein in particular was one of the smartest people in Germany and was also a Jewish scientist. And he figured if Germany is gonna have this power of fission, they can easily use it to make a weapon. And that's exactly what they were going to do. So he decides to write a letter in confidence to the United States of America warning them and their major physicists saying, listen, Germany has the power of nuclear fission. They're working on it now. It's possible. And not only is it possible, it's inevitable. 
They're going to make a bomb with the power of fission. And even then, we don't understand the true potential of fission the way the physicists do. But in 1930, most of anyone on the earth didn't understand. The president didn't have an understanding of it. You know, most military members didn't. Those scientists had to do their job of convincing these people how important this is going to be. And luckily, people like Einstein had a loud enough voice at the time to do it. So the United States ends up bringing a bunch of scientists that are fleeing Europe during World War II, people from Germany, Austria, Belgium, from all over. And they ship out these scientists to start a secret nuclear project to build the world's first bomb that uses the power of nuclear fission called a thermonuclear bomb. And that's going to be what we call the Manhattan Project. The war, Germany invaded Poland in 39, and then he got out right in the brink of time um, to, uh, to then create uh, the worst thing humanity has ever done. One, uh, one thing that's a little interesting. Uh, so I live near Knoxville, which uh, right next to Knoxville is Oak Ridge National Laboratory. And that's where the Manhattan Project was actually developed back in, in that time. Yeah, and uh, it's pretty cool. They call it the secret city because um, back then when they were first developing all the technology, they, that, that area of the country in, uh, as far as on paper didn't exist. So they uh, couldn't tell their families where they were, what they were doing because it was so classified at the time. <clears throat> wow, that's fucking awesome. So have you, well, what's it, can you go there now? Can you see anything or is it a military base? Yeah, so they're actually still um, a lot of activity there. It's a very, um, there's a lot of technology and uh, like development work that goes on there. There's a lot of engineering jobs and things like that still. You can go there. It's just like a city now. <clears throat> wow, that's cool. So there's there's housing. Is there housing or is it just really kind of a place to work like Area 51? Not so really. But you, know, you know what I mean? Uh, like Area 51, you don't live on. You yeah. Just, yeah, yeah. So there's like uh, the <clears throat> city of Oak Ridge, the town of Oak Ridge, and then like in Oak Ridge is uh, the different classified areas where they have different facilities for. Um, there's also, I, and I wish I could tell you more about this, but I don't know a lot about the history, but there's a, thir uh, a plant, a nuclear plant in this area as well. <clears throat> That's still active? Uh, don't know. <clears throat> okay, cool. That'd be a fun one because I've seen, so like Russia is a good example of people, of, of places that had all like expanding technology to compete with the US and you can now go to and just throw fucking rocks at, you know? Um, but every, I don't know if you guys have seen those videos of the uh, cooling towers in different parts of Russia where people just stand in and just look up and do cool things. And if in Knoxville, that's an opportunity for you, that could be pretty sweet. That's cool. Yeah. No, uh, yeah. definitely <laughs> nowhere that you can go and, uh, uh, adventure around an old nuclear facility. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. That's a really fucking cool fact, though. I mean, nothing that cool exists. There's some cool shit everywhere if you really look, but but to be a part of the biggest secret from the late 30s through the end of the war is like uh, pretty hardcore. I mean, up in the Northeast, we've got a lot of abandoned stuff, but it's really just support stuff so there's you know missile silos that have been cemented over in like the middlesex fells area in um like somerville uh medford area but nothing like really crazy it's all you know me and joe defense systems on the the, the are like our atlantic wall we've got you know a whole coast defense for for multiple different wars for fending off invasions but nothing like the manhattan project secret that's awesome andrew
Yeah. And yeah, like you've noted, the Manhattan Project was super secret. Like you said, they weren't even allowed to tell anyone about it. I mean, not only is this top secret, like you're going on a mission to another country, you're talking about the <clears> most important <throat> weapon, perhaps of all time, but definitely at the time was the most important weapon and people couldn't know about it. They had to take this entire team of physicists from all over, wherever we could get them, all over Europe for mostly. And the project was led, as Dylan mentioned, by uh, Robert Oppenheimer. And he was a physicist who was a nuclear physicist and was at the forefront of this and was chosen to put on the project. So the project took multiple scientists and picture everyone else involved, right? All the staff to work the facility, the security, everyone involved was on top secret clearance. They were not allowed to tell anybody. Most people actually lived on the facility, like you said, which doesn't usually happen on the site, but it, it added to the secrecy of this subject because if anyone knew they were doing it, it would have compromised the project, which Luckily for the United States, it did not because they were able to come up with the world's first thermonuclear bomb and they came up with two of them. Back in that time, we dropped bombs a lot differently than we do now. I mean, once we understood rocket technology and how to send uh, nuclear warheads across the world without using a plane, that's how we do it nowadays. If we ever do it, we won't be talking anymore. But at the time, they had to build a bomb and drop it out of a bomber. That was how they dropped bombs. So just because this is a different kind of bomb, doesn't mean they could do it any other way. So they took off with a plane, it's very famous now, called the Enola Gay. <clears throat> and they developed the two working bombs that were used the same way, uranium-235 with plutonium in there. And they developed Fat Man and Little Boy, which are the nicknames for the two bombs that they go on to drop on Hiroshima and Nagasaki to devastating effect that show the world the true power of the atom and the true power that comes from nuclear fission, what we're talking about today. Obviously, Russia and America had multiple test drops before the first attack was ever done to test to see if it worked. Some of the scientists who are the smartest physicists when it comes to atomic energy in the world hypothesized that when they launched the first or dropped the first nuke, rather, that there is a chance the atmosphere might light on fire. And they're the smartest people in the world. Like no one knew it was gonna happen when the first one went in the test site, they were scared as shit. And the military members who were standing with the binoculars weren't quite as scared because they didn't understand the sheer power of it. But after they tried the first one at Los Alamos and saw it go off, they all knew how powerful it was. They went on and dropped it on both those cities, like I said, that were you know, devastated from then on. So when a nuclear bomb goes off, it starts that fission chain reaction we talked about. And not only, is the energy that's released immense, which is the initial blast, the shock wave, and then the, that mushroom cloud we all picture as a nuclear bomb is because of all the, the heat energy and the blast rising up, the cool air from the upper atmosphere rushes down to meet that heat. And that makes that nice mushroom shape that we picture when we're seeing that nuclear bomb cloud because most bombs, their energy and blasts get high enough in the atmosphere to have that upper atmosphere cold air wrapped down. So when you drop a usual payload, you won't see that nice mushroom shape as you usually do. And the other thing we haven't mentioned about fission, and we mentioned briefly, is the radiation factor. So not only does this create a giant blast and a huge amount of energy and force, it has the after effect of radioactivity. So radioactivity is the part that makes it work and makes it go on. We said unstable elements are the reason why they break apart. They want it to be completely even and stable. 
And radioactivity is just the, the waves and the particles that fly off whenever an element is not stable. So the same reason why you can't hold uranium-235 in your hand and survive is because of the same fact that it works. It's so unstable that you're constantly being bombarded with subatomic particles and waves that tear apart your DNA structures itself. It's so small, it tears apart not only your cells, the DNA inside your cells. And within a very short period of time, you can die. Some people after the blast, they die within a week because of the radiation. Some people die within a year and some people die 10 years later. But when radioactivity comes into contact with biological beings, it tears you to shreds. And that is the aftermath of the bomb, which is the fallout afterwards. So not only is it the blast, the radioactivity makes an area uninhabitable, not just for that time where the fires go out, but for generations. I mean, we'll get into Chernobyl and what that means, but this part of nuclear power is the big black spot on it. Radioactivity and radiation is so dangerous and lasts for such a long time. It's kind of arguable that we, we should even be messing with this kind of thing. Like Dylan said, is most maybe the most awful thing that humans ever made is the atomic bomb. Oh, it definitely is. And, um, <clears throat> and uh, a couple other little facts to kind of go on some of your points. The, um, the Enola Gay was a, a B-29 bomber. Um, it was the newest bomber in the fleet in the U.S. Uh, I think it was still the Army at that point, or it may have been the Air Force, depending on when the Air Force was, I think, officially created in like 46, 47. But it was a B-29 heavy bomber. It was huge. It was the first pressurized bomber, super fucking cool. Um, and it was stationed, or, or I believe that the Enola Gay for a bit was stationed just outside of Roswell, New Mexico which is where the famous 1947 UFO crash happened. And that was just near where the Enola Gay was two years prior when it dropped. Um, which one did it drop? Was that Fat Man or Little Boy? On Because you have Hiroshima uh, and Nagasaki. I don't remember which one the Enola Gay dropped, but um, I think you had Fifi and Enola Gay. No, Fifi didn't drop one. But, um, but interesting, interesting stuff. That's all. Yeah, so just to wrap up the history before we get into the, uh, the power world, we get into it more with Andrew, is that since then, you know, the, the space race happened, the atomic age, basically the world understood the power that nuclear fission had, and people began to develop bigger and bigger bombs uh, to the point where we came up with the idea of the hydrogen bomb, which is where our two concepts come together, because that's a bomb that uses both nuclear fission and nuclear fusion. I mean, it actually uses the process of nuclear fission to create the proper environment for fusion, what we talked about. When those <clears> atomic <throat> bombs go off, all the fission bombs we talked about, that is very similar to what we're talking about in the center of the sun. I mean, the hottest places that have ever existed on the planet Earth have been in testing facilities, in nuclear reactors, and when the bombs go off. I mean, you're pretty close and sometimes hotter than the sun. <clears throat> I mean, the Hiroshima bomb and the Nagasaki bomb went off, for a brief moment, there was a spot on Earth that was hotter than the sun, which means that, I mean, it wasn't as massive, but there was a, a point that's hotter than the sun. It's insane to me. So they came up with the idea of the hydrogen bomb, which is using a secondary fusion charge within the same bomb to devastating effect. If you need to realize the difference between fusion and fusion, but how much power you can generate, it's the idea that fusion is massively different. The largest bomb ever detonated on the planet was the Tsar Bomba, which is the height of the Russian nuclear program. <clears throat> Again, it was a test bomb because the only two bombs that had ever been dropped 
in malice to then by the United States on Japan in a wartime. This bomb was lit up in, you know, Northern Russia, Siberia, which they treat as like a giant testing site the size of America. And they light, light this thing off. It's a hydrogen bomb in 1961. Now, the Tsar Bomba, which means Tsar bomb or, you know, the king of bombs, it was 50 megatons when it went off. So 50 megatons of TNT is how they decide how large a blast is. The mushroom cloud rose to 200,000 feet off the ground. Oh, yeah. Commercial Airlines, 35,000 35, feet. Yeah. Yeah. So the Tsar Bomba's cloud went 200,000 feet into the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, you know, multiple times <clears> the high plane has ever flown. And that's how high it went up in there in 30 megatons. Just for comparison, uh, when we're talking about the bombs dropped on Japan, the fat man was 15 kilotons. So one megaton being 100 times larger. So 50 megatons versus 15 kilotons. And this mushroom cloud rose to 20,000 feet. It's a little example of how much more powerful the hydrogen bomb can be than just the fission alone. And obviously both devastating, but luckily since then, we have yet to drop or activate a bomb that's that large, even though we still have had them all in development. And I think that upwards of 10 to 12 nations in the world do have nuclear weapons and have tested them, including the United States, Russia, France, the UK, India, and Pakistan have all detonated nuclear weapons. And North Korea is on the verge of being able to use their own program here. So and they've done, North Korea has done underground, underground nuclear testing. So they do underground, they do um, ground level, then they do ap- atmospheric nuclear testing where like the Tsar Bomba was actually detonated over, um, it was, yeah, Northern Siberia in the big island shaped like a dick above it called Severny Island. Um, yeah. And it was... Um, and that, again, that happened in the 60s, and it was dropped out of a, a Tupelo of TU-95 bear, that's what they call it. And the f- best fact about that is if you Google Severely Island on Google Maps, click in, click photos, and then maybe the fifth or sixth photo down is a picture of me. Um, uh, well, <laughs> it's a picture of a kayak. I, I literally uploaded a picture to see what happened in 2018 on that island. I was like, oh, I'm look, I'm researching the biggest, I'm just doing going down wormholes. And I was like, oh, it says I can add a photo to where the biggest bomb ever was ever blown up. And I did. And Joe, when you edit this, bring it up right here. You'll see it. It's a picture of Salem, Massachusetts on an island that I kayaked to off the coast. And um, and it says it's uploaded by Dylan Reed with a, the lobster logo next to it from my landscaping company in high school. Long and lobster. it's fucking hilarious. And it makes me so happy that I just double checked because every now and then Google gets, sends me an email that says, oh, you've reached 200,000 views on your photo. I've got no money. No one's giving me any wow. money, but I have a fucking so many views because it's an island and no one's questioned it yet because it's an island. So is Severely Island. It doesn't look that much different. Besides, there's actually a power plant in the, in the distance, but um, but that's that's what happened. So to to add to a, a couple of values to what you're saying, there's been thousands of nuclear tests since this was invented, and it's yeah. fucking terrifying. And the reason it happens is because everybody, we'll get to, we're getting a little off track, but um, but is the, uh, what do they call it, Andrew, you might know, um, where basically uh, we have all this, we can basically kill everyone on earth and so can the other countries so if we shoot them uh they'll shoot us and we'll all die what's that it's a mutually assured 
Oh, okay. Nice. That's not where I was going with that at all. I was going with game theory, but <laughs> yes. yeah, it's talking about mutually assured destruction or mad. Okay. Mad, that's exactly it. <laughs> yep. Um, so, so Russia has got a, you know, they've everybody, especially Iran, Russia, we've all taken down our nuclear arsenals of, uh, you know, the, the payload that we can, we, we have, um, but that is the that is the problem. That's why this race was on. Our on the books payload, by the way, which is it's always cute where America goes. All right, we're the only ones who use it. It has to stop doing it, and everyone stop. Everyone dismantle. We'll dismantle all of ours except for about mm -hmm. ten thousand that we still have active right now. But that's not yeah. that many. We used to have thirty thousand, so we're working. Yep. We're styling it back. Which yeah, I don't know the exact numbers, but for the amount of power that our our modern nuclear warheads can generate you don't need much more than 500 to end all humanity as we know it so 10,000 is more than enough if anyone well, with, has uh, <clears throat> not sure if you folks have seen uh, hills have eyes but uh, it ain't looking so good hills have eyes was set uh, in the yeah exactly in that part in the, in the deserts of new mexico and it was probably specifically new mexico um, where they were downwind from these sites because you blow up an area um, the dust goes in the air, and all of a sudden you have nuclear fallout, which is just radioactive dust that goes on. These people have birth defects or whatever it is. And specifically, the worst case possible, and it's the worst fucking story in the whole fucking earth, is the Marshall Islands, where we did underwater nuclear tests, and we did like 60 or 70 of them, and that's the size of Hawaii. And we just blew the fuck out of that place, but it was full of it was full of locals, and it's a really shitty story. But that shitty story exists in a lot of other countries too. We didn't kill anybody directly, but indirectly we did because we said, hey, we're just going to do some tests here and you guys can go back home when we're done. And that didn't happen. Absolutely. That's a good point. The amount of tests that have gone off. I mean, there's a video on YouTube is worth checking out where all it does is show you a map and it's one blip every time a test goes off. And it is horrifying seeing 1945 until today and just the amount of them that gone off. It's completely insane. When you see the aftermath and how much radiation, how devastating it is when we talk about Hiroshima, we talk about Chernobyl, <laughs> we're going to talk about just the devastation that it causes, the idea that we're spewing that into our planet a thousand times over in order to make sure we can kill each other, it's fucking disgusting. But it's yeah. an unfortunate truth, like you said, it just, it is, it is what it is, you know? Yep. A fun fact too, my father-in-law, when he was in the Air Force in 1964, he was a ballistic missile analyst technician um, for the, I think it was the, the Atlas V missiles. Um, based in Oklahoma. So those places you go like Nebraska, Oklahoma, North Dakota, um, that's where they put these things that are the intercontinental ballistic missiles that go into low orbit and then kind of take that pathway to hit anywhere on Earth, which is why we're concerned about North Korea right now, because they're getting close to that. Do you want to tell that story about um, him working there? Yeah, so I've tried to pick his brain as much as I can. Um, uh, there's not a whole lot of story I, um, besides, you know, he enlisted in the Air Force. He's from Long Island, and um, they sent him to Oklahoma. Um, and a lot of his buddies were in Nebraska near SAC, which is Strategic Air Command, where our B-52s, which would be our nuclear bombers that would drop the big ones, but most airplanes are nuclear capable. Um, but yeah, he was, I forget what base it was in Oklahoma. Basically, what they do is they do simulated tests, and that's kind of it. Uh, besides that, you're kind of just walking around, hanging out with your buddies and waiting for the day to end because you don't want to have to actually do your job. Um, but these are missile silos that are 10 stories or more, maybe even 20 stories. I mean, they're really freaking big. 
And the Atlas V is outdated. It was replaced by the, I think the Minuteman um, missile now is what, is what we have. But the Atlas V was a solid rock. Uh, maybe no, actually, no, no, it was a liquid rocket booster, which is why it's been replaced because they had to periodically take the liquid oxygen out of it and then refill it with new stuff. So it was like a cycle. Whereas like the, the, the Minuteman missiles, which we have now are solid rocket boosters. So they don't require as much maintenance and they're more reliable. Um, interesting, cool stuff. So yeah, he just said basically there wasn't a whole lot to do um, besides just uh, show up and wait. Hurry up and wait, I think is the word. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting concept yeah. to be an expert at your job and be trained every day to, in case of disaster, uh, turn the key, as it were, and launch these weapons that are going to essentially end the world and make sure that they go down with you. And that's an interesting, weird job to have. To say, I'm going to train every day to be an expert on this, so in case anything happens, I can handle it with precision. But I also am every day waking up hoping I never have to do my job. <laughs> it's yeah. Weird. No, That's not good. You're making that decision. It's it's you. It's the 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 ballistic sub, the, the ballistic missile su submarines, um, uh, the, the aircraft that are on um, like I mentioned, SAC. Oh, fucking hilarious acronym. But Strategic Air Command, based out of just outside of uh, Omaha, Nebraska, they constantly have B-52s within minutes of Russia all the time on both sides, on the east coast, um, and on the the west coast by Alaska, going like this. So if something ever happened, they are within minutes of being able to drop a nuclear bomb. And some of those crashed. Did you know that? One of them crashed in Pennsylvania. It was called like Project Silver Bullet or Silver <laughs> yeah. Arrow. Silver yeah. Arrow. It was Silver yeah. Arrow. I don't know if you yeah. know this, Andrew, but there's a B-52 with like four or four to six thermonuclear bombs that took off out of Westover, Massachusetts in between the 60s and the 80s, somewhere in there. I forgot about this. That took off in bad weather. When the B-52 had, uh, I forget what model it was, but it had the smaller tail. It wasn't as big. And um, it was a pilot who was a B-17 pilot in World War II, super experienced combat bomber dude, took off out of Westover, Massachusetts in a snowstorm and made it over Pennsylvania. The tail broke off and it fucking crashed with Whoops. four to six thermonuclear bombs on it. And he told his wife that morning, hey, um, uh, I'll always, I'll always call you if you don't hear from me. He crashed or ejected out of a B-52. Like half the crew died, and he ran to somebody's house and made a call to his wife and said, "Hey, I'm, I'm okay." And then they found a B-52, part of Silver Arrow project, that had nuclear bombs on it that fucking crashed in Pennsylvania. This happened. This yeah, actually happened. Right Dude, that's insane. I had no idea about that. I'm actually kind of shocked that. We actually were able to find out about that, honestly. The scariest part is you mentioned uranium-235. Um, it's different. That, uranium-235, I think, is different than the uranium that they put in warheads. Um, there, There's two different types. So there's 235, and then you mentioned 236, which has an extra, an extra um, neutron added to it. One of them is volatile and, and like explosive, and one of them isn't. You can right now... Go to unitednuclear.com and buy uranium. And it's not the same <laughs> uranium. It's not the same uranium. And you can get it mailed oh, to your fucking house. But it's not the same uranium that blows up in bombs that you can, that, that is, or, or is highly radioactive and is going to give you cancer. Oh, so real quick. So uranium found as you'd find it in like a, a brick or whatever, it's mostly all uranium-238, which is completely inert. Uh, just that's okay. in nature. That's why it's not radioactive. When we find it mostly, but a very tiny part of the brick you'll find because the nature of uranium 
will be uranium-235, which is uh. a stable version of it. And that's why we talk about your enriching uranium. So when we find uranium, 99% mm. of it is completely non-useful to us. We want that 1% that we can use to start fission. And enriching uranium is a process where we take that brick of uranium and we make a whole lot of more atoms, 235 instead of 238. That way, when we launch that, new, that neutron at it, it becomes 236. Now we get a bunch more of a powder keg to go off than usual. And that's why it, mm. uranium itself isn't inherently dangerous. It's the fact that the enriched yeah u30 uh, u35 235 can be the one we really need so that's um i think what you're talking about there yeah yep and um just for i so yeah you, exactly what i'm trying to talk about i just don't know what the hell i'm talking about so it's the no, other one yeah 238 then enriched to 235 is what you're saying that's right got it cool um another really weird just side fact is that like during all these times where the u.s was super like bonered up about about uh, nuclear weapons, um, they made handheld ones. You know, what? like like a rocket launcher that had a little tiny warhead on it. Yeah, it went absolutely. It actually, it actually worked, and it has like a. It's like a mini nuclear explosion. It still is gonna. It has the fallout. It has the radioactivity. It has that type of stuff, but it doesn't blow up a city. It just like really fucking sucks. <laughs> you know, like it's. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, the process yeah. works. You scale it down or up. I mean, the idea that you have to it's actually mounted on a soldier's back. It launches yeah. Down. It causes the same results. You just, just, you know, scale it down. It's still yeah. Reactive, still the fallout. Still devastating. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And and um, uh, another small example of that is the, uh, I think the A10 Warthog has a uranium packed round, and it's it's specifically just because of, I don't know, Andrew. Why why do you think? Because uh, I can't answer this. Uranium obviously is heavier than let's say, regular steel. Um, why would an A10 Warthog that has a round that's like this big have a uranium packed round like what's the point of that if it doesn't blow up into a like situation i have no idea <laughs> <laughs> well, th use your fucking brain man i think about it like why do you think uh, dude, it's heavier than literally... most metals um but perhaps they to... just want the uh I, I have no idea if maybe they want the mass behind it to help blow shit up <laughs> bingo bingo you, okay you, you both just nailed that without just dancing on the topic it's not that it's radioactive or that it's going to be able to start fission it's exactly what you said it's a super heavy element so they actually call them spent mm. uranium shells so uranium yes. has either been discarded after being enriched or the extra uranium like you said it's such a heavy element i mean i think i mean i don't know where iron is in the periodic table but it's a it's heavier compared to hydrogen or carbon but uranium is such a heavy element if you can make a shell and a round out of uranium, it's so heavy that the impact force is so much greater. So you can rip right through a tank when you usually use uh, steel or copper or whatever round you're going to use, you know, in war, if we're going to have a different kind of slug. A uranium round is so heavy that when it's flying through the air, you create that much <clears throat> more force going into it that can tear it apart. Just to clarify, just to add a, a, a conclusion to that, volume to weight for uranium is like, 10 times more than steel like so you can have the yeah, same just, uh, you have the same size of uranium yeah. to steel but you know what i mean like this weighs 10 times more than it yeah. does as uranium than does a steel same look up uh, the pure look at the atomic weight look up the atomic weight we know 235 is uh uranium so whatever gold uh lead you know it's probably like four times more i would think if i remember you know in the 70s what blood 76 or something like that uh <laughs> it says it says 238 u 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what's what's led? Uh, let's see. Um, I should already have the hero table open for this episode. I don't even know why I'm in there. Lead is two oh seven. Okay, I was wrong with the two three times more part, but yeah. So it's fifty percent more, whatever. A little less than. Mm. Well, it's a little more than lead, I guess. <laughs> but, but that difference, well, even though it's a little bit more, is a massive difference if you scale. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah, sure. a couple neutrons and protons bigger than that, when you pack that, that's why a brick of gold weighs uh, uh, so much compared to a, a usual brick of iron or copper or something like that. The atomic weight, which doesn't matter when we're talking about individual atoms, is barely manageable. But when you make an actual substance all made out of it, like uranium, a baseball of uranium would feel like a weight you use at the gym because of how dense it is and how much of a ton of weight it has there. Hmm. Got it. Got it. So I, I just want to know if Andrew could describe to us really yeah. fast the, uh, the energy that it takes. The, real, the realization we talked about in past episodes was that about asteroids is that it doesn't take very much weight or I should say mass. When you add force to it, it becomes so much more destructive. So the actual velocity of a small piece of mass can be completely destructive just based on the speed of it. Could you describe to us a little bit the relationship between uh, mass and velocity and what that means as far as energy is concerned? Yeah, so you guys might remember the relationship once I say it, but so kinetic energy is one half mass times velocity squared of the object. So you have a exponential growth relationship with the velocity compared to the mass, which is just linear. So if you double, like say you shoot an object hundred miles an hour, if it's one kilogram, then it, so if you have the two, two kilogram ball and you launch that compared to a one kilogram ball at the same velocity, it'll be twice as much energy. Whereas if you launch it at uh, 200 miles an hour versus hundred miles an hour, 200 squared is exponentially larger than 100 squared. So you get much more energy related to velocity than you ever can get when you just are trying to change the variable of mass. If you right. don't have, you know, a lot, say if you're in a situation where you don't have an option to have a lot of mass, you can change velocity kind of relatively a little bit and gain a lot more energy that way. For <clears throat> so other words, hmm. if you're taking a cannonball that weighs a pound and launching it, and taking a cannonball that weighs two pounds and launching it is not that much of an increase. It's about two times the amount of the original one. But if you can launch it at twice the speed, you're getting the equivalent of a cannonball that weighs four pounds hitting it rather than that, just because you're increasing the velocity. Like you said, exponential growth, meaning it's compounding upon itself. So you can keep adding more and more weight, but it's much more efficient to add more and more energy for that velocity because you get that much more of an impact than just having a more massive object. That's absolutely correct. Yep. <clears throat> wild. Totally wild. So let's give it to Andrew Thrain to talk about nuclear power plants and how those puppies produce electrical energy. Get us started. A to Z, yeah. man. What do you think? All right. Sounds good. So I'll, uh, I think I'll go through a little bit on how generally it works and then get into high-level power generation, and then we'll focus back in on some other stuff. So uh, first off, just generally power plants and nuclear power. So uh, about probably two-thirds of a nuclear power plant is going to be really similar to any 
other turbine based form of power generation. So uh, for a coal plant or a gas fired, you know, uh, natural gas plant or any other plant like that, you're going to have some kind of source of energy and then you're going to somehow release that energy by burning it mostly is what we do now. And that will boil water usually, which will create steam. And then that steam is fed into a turbine, which extracts the power from the steam, the energy from the steam. Uh, that steam loses a bunch of heat and pressure throughout that process. And that's how you generate the power. And from there, you basically, your turbine is powering, a, is uh, spinning up a generator. So that generator is then pumping power out into the grid. So that's pretty much how that works from like a super high level. Uh, then once the steam is it's condensed and returned back to be heated again, so that, that's a closed loop cycle. Uh, some are open loop. Well, actually, maybe all of them are open loop where you're basically, that's what the cooling towers are for. You're, you're burning off. Actually, that's right. Sorry, not a closed loop system at all. Open loop. They're pumping water into the plant. They're doing what I've just described, and then they're releasing that steam through the cooling towers. So anyone that's like wondering what is coming out of a cooling tower, it's just steam. It's nothing to be worried about. Um, okay, yeah. so that's kind of the general. Coal plants work the same as nuclear power plants. I mean, they have the same idea, right? We're trying to spin this turbine to have this electromagnetic coil <clears throat> Induct electricity in order to transfer that into electricity. So coal plants burning coal work similar to light water nuclear power plants, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, that's it's, right. It's crazy. It's the same concept. It's just it's so much shittier because it's um, so much less efficient. I think I was looking at a statistic real quick that was like uh, a piece of coal is um, uh, uh, it's like uh, oh yeah yeah is it, so so. Um, Fusion. Oh, sorry. Oh, let's go to fission. Um, Talking about the all in out, which Dylan brought up earlier. Which is a good yeah, 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 yeah. Energy in, energy out. Um, one kilogram of uranium, um, energy wise, equals twelve thousand liters of oil, or nineteen thousand kilograms of of coal. Um, so you can see that's one kilogram. That's that's what Andrew. How many pounds is that? Three. Uh, two point three or something like that. Two point three. Yeah. So yeah. like. Let's just say like two pounds of uranium equals 19,000 kilograms of coal. That's how much energy in equals energy out. Totally fucking wild. And just That's so another, another thing too is um, I, I used to live, you guys have all been to my apartment or when I first lived in Salem over that direction. Um, it smelled like a barbecue all the time because there was a coal plant. Literally, I was like, ah, oh, someone's grilling. It's like December. <laughs> oh, they're grilling. They're grilling really hard. Uh, they're hardcore. Into that thing. Yeah, there's a there's a uh, cargo ship of coal coming in and grilling up all that charcoal. That's what was happening. But it actually smelled like someone was grilling. It was crazy. So, anyways, back to you, Andrew. I just want to throw that in there. All right, sounds good. So, um, I said in the beginning, we'll talk about how a plant generally works. Then we'll get into some kind of high level stuff. So. Please. Where that gets into, uh, so I think to add some context to this discussion about power generation, uh, it's important to realize uh, all these different technologies that we use to create power, they're all vying for resources for research and development. So uh, if you're like wondering why maybe, for example, certain technologies aren't further along, 
Well, a lot of it has to do with maybe funding and why, like, you know, for example, when we start to talk about fission versus fusion, um, or sorry, fusion versus fission, um, you know, we could speed that timeline up drastically, but it's so expensive. So that's why, you know, wind energy, solar energy, whatever means that we're able to generate energy the cheapest and most affordably is ultimately going to win the race. Uh, you know, when you consider other factors such as pollution and environmental impact, uh, cost, um, those types of things. So when we talk about how the future of nuclear energy looks, it depends a lot on the vision, like the vision that the country sets forth for it. If there's not a lot of if there's not a lot of publicity around it and if there's not a lot of, if there's no one there to push that cause for nuclear power, then we're going to have a really hard time developing the technology and getting a, a second wave of nuclear technology to come through because as I don't know if we know this, but there's not been much activity building nuclear power plants in the last 40 years. So a lot of that, you know, knowledge was lost. Uh, it's been too many generations since we had people that were, used to building nuclear power plants. So we're having to rebuild a lot of that infrastructure if we want to pursue a nuclear future. I did thought you brought up a good point, which is it's the amount of resources, because it's not as much as, I mean, nowadays more than ever, people are environmentally focused on how energy production is going to be affecting the planet in the future. But now as much as ever, the main factor that decides what kind of energy we're going to use, like you said, is the amount of research and funding that goes into it. And the more easily you can put the process forth is what's going to happen. I mean, even if it's more efficient to use different types of energy, if they can't be produced efficiently and can't be built, they're as good as nothing. So that's why it's easier to build another coal plant than it is nuclear power plant, even though we had the technology for a while, it's because of the fact that you got to get dollars, you got to go get people involved in it and coal power and other power plants like that are tried and true and they're easy to run and Obviously, they destroy the earth and they're wildly inefficient, like Dylan said. It's just a kilogram is worth that much coal. It's insane to say you wouldn't use the other one, but it's where the dollars are at. It's, it's proven yep. versus and that's it. so the perception of nuclear power is going to kind of have to continue to improve if we want to continue to pursue it. So, like, that's one huge advantage of um, uh, fusion versus fission because. Uh, in a fusion reaction, if something goes wrong, the reaction will just collapse because you're having to induce heat and pressure versus the other way around where you can have runaway reactions with a uh, fission uh, reaction. So that's w uh, one other huge benefit I don't think we've touched on yet uh, about the difference between the two technologies. So, <clears throat> so real quick, um, just to, to add to both points, what you just said and what Joe just said, I didn't, I didn't raise my hand enough. Um, is a classic example of this just for people who uh need a better wide view is um uh the electric car was invented in like the late 1800s or early 1900s like that um and it was uh it was pretty much shut down because gas was cheaper you know tesla that whole concept um is a hundred years old it just was too expensive in 1900 to continue on it's the same thing for nuclear energy fission it to so say that like fukushima for example um <clears throat> what i was learning about is that uh with fukushima they were prepared for an earthquake but they weren't prepared for a tsunami um so to 
to shut down those reactors with the the um, what are they called? That thing to do this? Control rods. Control rods to do that. That was all good. Those like boron controlled to control the reactions that are happening. Then I figured out, but to add more water into those control rods, which I think were lead, is where the real problem was. With fusion, I believe from what I was reading with the fusion reactors that we have, there's two of them. One of them is in France, one of them is in China that we have. You can actually just hit a button and shut the whole thing off. And then it's off. Like it's no matter what, it's off. If there's a flood, an earthquake, whatever it is, it's just off. With fission, it ain't fucking off. There's like way more steps in place that you have to take to make sure that happens, which is why there has been three major disasters because it's a chain reaction of problems, not just one problem. Whereas fusion, you can just turn it off. Um, so I think that's why I wanted to add that to what you were saying is that that's in simple people's uh, idiot terms um, makes sense. That is a perfect transition, Dylan, because of what you just said right now is why nuclear fission is such a dangerous operation <clears throat> and why the, in the past, it's been a big issue. And it's also what Andrew said, why in the past 40 years, there's barely been any nuclear power plants built in the entire world, even though it's such an efficient form of energy production because of the disasters that happen when it goes wrong. They're so bright in people's memory that it's hard to forget. I mean, the amount of people who die every year from the pollution of coal, never mind people who are mining it, making it, the climate change is happening from the production of coal. It's a massive scale problem. But people don't remember massive problems that last hundreds of years. They remember tragic events. And yeah. a couple of events in history that have happened that have shown people the true potential that nuclear power can go wrong. One of them Dylan just brought up, which is the most recent one, which is the Fukushima power plant. And the reason why all that stuff happens, what we just talked about, is exactly what Andrew said. In nuclear fission, you're basically starting a chain reaction, like you're lighting a fuse on a stick of dynamite, and now your job is to try to control that dynamite exploding just the right way to take the power and transfer as much power as you can. Like Dylan would say, get the horsepower from the engine to the wheels. How much of that can we get actually into the power grid versus not? So it's basically a controlled explosion versus fusion, where, like you said, you're having to maintain this reaction constantly, and you can shut it off at any time. The reason why control rods are brought in is to try to slow that. It's almost like you know you're you're throttling the engine. You're trying to control the reaction. And a nuclear plant, like we were saying, that same reaction we talked about earlier goes on over and over again with neutrons firing, and the chain reaction goes, and it's in this core that's filled up with with water to try to buffer it from the outside world and they have this rack of control rods that are often tipped with graphite which is sort of a carbon that hmm. is like lead and they're put in with boron or otherwise elements that are really good at soaking up neutrons basically as the reaction is going on these neutrons are firing over and over again exploding all these atoms and going off but they drop these control rods and they soak up a lot of these neutrons that are going off like crazy. So if there's less fuses being lit, there's less bombs going off at an atomic level. And that's why you need these control rods always to be dipping in and out of the core to try to keep it stable all the time, like controlling an explosion, which is much more dangerous than running your usual type of engine where you're actually, what am I talking about? Every engine is a controlled explosion, <laughs> internal combustion wise or Andrew, uh, Joe, Joe, you mentioned graphite. Um, 
uh, Andrew, is graphite similar to lead in composition? Because I know that at um, Chernobyl, for example, those firefighters um, who like originally showed up at the scene, they were like, what is this? And they're picking up either graphite or lead, which encapsulated the control rods. Um, right, Joe? Um, I believe that was lead. Yeah, that, that was part was of that lead or graphite. OK, I'm, I'm wondering because I'm like, yeah. I remember. Yeah, I mean, graphite, I believe, is just like carbon. So, you know, carbon is mm. not as much. Uh, they're definitely different uh, in properties for sure. Lead okay, I don't know if they were like close metal. enough. Yeah. So, so <laughs> we're thinking so at, at Chernobyl or, or really anywhere even well, Hampton, fucking New Hampshire. Um, well, let's, let's talk about Chernobyl right now. So you can go into the point you're going to say. Go ahead. The elephant foot? Chernobyl? What about Chernobyl? So what we're talking about Fukushima is the most recent uh, nuclear <clears throat> problem. We're talking about that, that tsunami that Dylan was talking about back in 2011. But the most famous nuclear disaster we know about is in Chernobyl, which is in Pripyat, Ukraine. And it was what happens when this delicate system you have goes haywire. Nuclear meltdown is when that reaction goes uncontrolled. And there's all kinds of backup systems to try to stop this from happening. But once a total <clears throat> nuclear meltdown happens, it's nearly impossible for humans to stop it. And we see the aftermath in events like what happened in Chernobyl. And it's even more impossible when the government uh, tries to hide the whole thing for a while, then scientists and countries that are surrounding that country uh, realize that the error, uh, the parts per million mar molecules of whatever the byproduct of is of a, of a uh, nuclear meltdown are showing up, but they're still denying the whole thing. And a certain Jared Harris is uh, on the scene immediately as a, uh, a person who is a famous actor in the show Terrible. Um, anyways, um, yeah, major meltdown um, and probably the most famous one of all time because it was the really the most true meltdown where you can go to today and the whole area is encapsulated. The whole town of Chernobyl and the surround towns are abandoned. Schools, this stuff, everyone got up and left because they saw snow when it happened and that snow killed them all or eventually probably killed them all. Um, yeah, they kill people for miles around. There's people who are witnessing the, the night where the meltdown happened and there's a lot of mistakes made that only in the past now- So many mistakes. I mean, at the time, it's the USSR that are very secretive. Like you said, the fact that the government was trying to hide all of this, it produced the deaths of thousands of people because they didn't let anyone know about it. And like you said, they were watching the reactor melt down. And it was, oh, it's so pretty. And look at all the snow and the stars. And every single person who witnessed it that night died very yeah. shortly. And the, and the firefighters were picking up bricks of lead, literally bricks of lead that exploded out of the whole thing. And again, that wasn't a, just to clarify to folks, that wasn't a nuclear explosion. It was a no. chemical explosion, very yeah. different, which is super important. No, it was not a nuclear explosion. It was a chemical explosion. It's when different, you know, atomic particles don't react well and then blow up. It's not the same thing as an atomic bomb blowing up, but they're radioactive though. Um, but <clears throat> um, that's my big point here. But those firefighters were picking up these things and saying, this is really hot. What is this? And then those guys seven to 10 days later, um, turned into the hills have eyes and died the most painful, awful, terrible fucking death that you could ever think of um, because they're, I'm not really sure what radiation does to cells on a, on a actual intelligent standpoint, but it, it, it breaks them down and um, uh, changes the DNA and, and causes burns and, and just, just destroys uh, anything organic.
Yeah, absolutely. That's the, that's the sheer terror of radiation and how we understand we're working with powers that we don't fully understand the, the amount of energy it can create. I mean, it's the same thing people are picking up those bricks. You don't feel radiation entering your body, but it's wreaking havoc nonetheless. And like we were saying, almost everyone in Pripyat and around surrounding territories, there were schools a thousand miles away. People were still affected by it, getting severe forms of cancer five to 10 years later. Their kids were being born uh, with uh, mutations and deformities. I mean, it's just brutal. When radiation is shooting through your body, much like you said, it's dripping apart your DNA. So think of it as you're tearing apart the code, like you're going into a computer program and you're deleting all the code and then seeing what happens. I mean, your cells are part of your body because they're running on that code. And if you start tearing that apart at that molecular level, your body can't run the same way. So it either comes down to you being next to the object. You won't feel it like a fire. You won't feel it like a gunshot, but you're being affected much more severely than that. And people within a couple hours, their skin would start to blister up. It would start to melt off of their body. I mean, they had, people on melt off. they had people on respirators. It, it looked like you were in a three alarm fire, but you were as good, as right as rain an hour from now, you go home and lay down, you look like you're melting away another. I mean, radiation poisoning has got to be one of the worst ways to go that I've ever seen. And people had to go through it in Chernobyl and they had to do it through it afterwards, which included people having to go in and shut this thing down. I mean, you have an uncontrolled mm -hmm. reaction like Dylan said, it's not an atomic bomb exploding, but it's a chemical <clears throat> reaction that has the core is continuing that chain reaction Andrew was talking about over and over again. And someone's got to shut it down. Or it's just going to keep going. It's a national emergency. And there was a lot of people who had to be on site and be experts. And they had to just basically sign their life away and said, I'm going to try to stop this chain reaction to save thousands of lives, but I am therefore resigning my own. I mean, they were basically signing up for suicide to save the world. And that's what they had to do. Exactly. And to, so I have a question for Andrew based off of like another fact that is, that is a, a, a similar type of thing. The, another famous example, this is the K-19 uh, uh, Russian sub that had a nuclear meltdown on a submarine. Cause as we know, aircraft carriers and submarines are also powered by nuclear reactors. Um, the K-19 had a problem in the same thing. One guy well, I think they all end up dying maybe, but there's one guy specifically had to go in there and shut it down, but he was certain death, certain death to a, a you know, sure, to, guaranteed to die, guaranteed to die, but he knew he had to do it to save the crew members. Um, so he opened the door, walked in the reactor, did whatever the fuck he had to do. Um, and then, you know, it was so much radiation that he died within hours or whatever it is. Andrew, what the fuck is radiation? Because I read about it. Um, you think you know, because you go to x-rays and you have very, very little amount, or you have radiation from the sun, or you have radiation from um, basically putting different things in microwaves or whatever, you know, microwave, the, not microwave, the microwave that you, you have in your house. What is radiation and why is that something that is invisible, but also bad? And how does this pertain to nuclear energy? I think that's a, a so quick clarification that we all need. I know it's particles that are traveling at kind of certain frequencies that technically are described in like the X-ray band or something like that. Uh, and I, I want to say it's like photons that get emitted from different materials that basically cause what Joe was talking about, where I, I believe it's photons that they're getting emitted from the, these atoms or these, yeah, these atoms. 
and uh, basically tearing through your skin and, and well, your, your DNA. Uh, I mean, I know it works like that in terms of. They're so small that your skin is, is so many millions of cells that when these particles are flying through your skin, they're so tiny that they're going down to the atomic level. So they, they're going straight through your skin on atomic level. They're not even hitting anything until they start to hit the atoms and the atoms make up the molecules that a lot of times make up the building blocks of who you are. Hmm. Think of it this way. If you're going to take a knife and you're going to stab a country, it's not going to hurt the country. But if you get someone in the heart, now you're starting to do some damage to the country, right? If you get a million people in the heart, now it's a disaster. The radiation is someone trying to stab somebody, but it's the size of a country. And only if they hit your heart does it really get you. Unfortunately, you have trillion of atoms in your body. So it's going to get a lot. of. <laughs> I know that was the really scientific answer you were looking for, Dylan, from me and Joe, but uh, it is. sorry to yeah. disappoint. <laughs> no, 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 it is. Because I was just, I was just reading because but to really learn what that actually means and that there's a piece of like the elephant foot in Chernobyl is a really uh, popular um, artifact. I'd say it's, it's, it's like a meltdown of um, it's, it's, it's like the actual, it's the most radioactive piece in Chernobyl and it's literally, it looks like an elephant foot. And like, that is a thing that you could look at right now. That looks like it's something sitting in my basement. looks like that. Um, but if you come within, you know, 20 feet of that thing you're almost certainly going to die but you won't know that for like seven days oh yeah it's and there's so also weird. like an interesting there's like an interest <clears throat> so the, the there's a half-life of all radioactive material and yes. it's like uh the time that it takes to lose half of its radioactivity i think or something like that and so mm-hmm. like you can calculate how long something will be radioactive at a level that is dangerous to humans. So I'm sure out there is some date that some scientist has said that like you could go back to Chernobyl and it would be okay, but. <laughs> it's a long time, buddy. That's how long these radioactive materials are still radiating. It, it's not just, you know, let, let the fire burn out. It might take a hundred years. I mean, we're talking about tens of thousands of years i mean they don't think you could go back to chernobyl for at least ten thousand years before it's safe to be there i mean it's the kind of the forces we're working with here is that it's just the effects go on and on forever i mean there's safe levels of radiation people inject radioactive elements into their bloodstream they go into a, an x-ray or a ct scanner and you can track how it goes in your body the half-life of that particular radioactive chemical sticks out so after that's done oh nice and that's how they use it in science and medical practices. But a lot of elements, such as radioactive waste, which nuclear fission reactors make millions of tons of every year, are completely dangerous radioactive for thousands and thousands of years. There's one big part about nuclear fission power plants. There's no way to put this shit. You can't just let it yeah. go in the ocean. Mm. You can't even just put it out in the desert. You have to bury it under feet and feet of concrete and there's really no, nothing good to do with it because it won't be not dangerous for upwards of 30,000 years so we don't even understand that when it's going to be not dangerous again that's a major setback when it comes to uh yeah working in nuclear power plants just the, the all the waste you just can't even be near yeah it's, it's pretty fucked 
I got a question. Um, so you got nuclear waste like that, that's like crazy radioactive. Um, and then you have radioactive dyes that you inject via IV into patients who need um, scans. So Joe, it sounds like you have a lot to say about this. I want to ask a question because I've had this done that's twice. That's what I was just talking about. That's all. I just, that's what I just talked about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, what? No, no, sorry. no, I'm just saying no, it's like it's, it's a it's a really good question because like there's a spectrum clearly, like um, of this whole thing, and like there's radioactive like Chernobyl, and then there's I've, so like I think twice I've had it because the you sit there and I have a CT scan. I think it was my last one was like a couple of years ago. I had like some crazy stomach pain, so they thought I had appendicitis. Um, so they're like, all right, well, we're going to give you an IV and we're going to inject you with radioactive dye. So the CT scanner will be able to show more of what's flowing through that area. And um, first thing for, for, you, for you boys out there is when they do that, it feels like you kicked in the balls. She's like, it's going to feel warm in your groin. I was like, okay, cool. That's fine. And I was like, ah, I was like, it feels like I kicked in the nuts. Like I'm like just laying there and it feels like it just hits you. Like it goes down the vagus nerve or something right to your ball sack. And then you're like, oh man, this sucks. But, uh. oh, it's terrible. You know, it really does. But like, I'm fine. That type, that's like radioactive dye that shows up on a CT scan, which is again, more, um, it's basically an X-ray in a different form that then reacts to the dye that goes in you. But like, why is that on a, a such a level that is able to, like I going to not harm you yeah, not yeah harm you. Yeah. i wish i would have like uh looked into that a little more before i hopped on but uh, there's definitely spectrum like you said it's a good way to put it obviously that we've you know we've figured that out but i i wish i could put it in intelligible terms what the difference is between the different things that mm -hmm. <clears throat> certain yeah, things that have half-life that aren't harmful that are short certain things have you know a long half-life and they are really harmful we were talking about uh, waste for a second there, and I think we can use that to tie it into this whole thing we're going to go down. But basically, that's another benefit of, uh, you know, in the war fusion versus fission debate, which way should we put our energy and research into? Uh, you know, you don't have the waste with uh, fusion like you do with fission. So that's a pretty huge benefit. But uh, one thing that we could talk about, generally speaking, for nuclear, regardless of fission or fusion is kind of how that how that sector of power generation can kind of fit in with where we are going in the future so you know with a turbine based system you end up having more power on demand which is why coal plants are still kind of the, and you know gas burning plants are still kind of the backbone of our power system because you can ramp them up and down quickly and relatively cheaply compared to some other forms of energy. So, so being able to change the actual power production is a lot more easily and quick if you use it that way, rather than the slow generation of electricity. Rather. Exactly. So like you can just decide to burn more or less coal and turn more or less turbines on and you can turn, you know, you can increase or decrease the amount of power that you can generate at any given time during peak hours or during the middle of the night, you can slow ramp up and down. Um, so then you have, uh, so that's one kind of segment. And then you have another segment, which would be more like, you know, green energy stuff, uh, certain green energies, which would be like solar or wind, which we don't control the output of the power in those applications. 
So in the example of wind, which is pretty interesting, it's more similar uh, uh, initially to like uh, a nuclear power generation in that you're going to be generating and turning a generator with the wind energy. Uh, with the solar, where this gets really fun, we could go down the rabbit hole with this one. You have to actually, you can generate and use that power right then from the sun, or you can try and store that energy somehow. And in all of these forms of energy generation, we would, we need to develop the energy storage capabilities on the grid because that's a huge that's going to be a huge necessity when we start moving towards these different forms of power. That's changing it <laughs> on demand being beneficial versus taking time. If you can store it properly, you can have it on demand just as fast, right? Yeah. So, and I, I'm not super familiar with how quickly or slowly, like you can ramp up different types of nuclear plants per se, but the technology that, or the part of the system that actually turns the output heat energy or pressure energy or whatever they're using into electricity from the turbine part of that system that has the capability to go up and down. So at that point, you're only limited by what the nuclear reaction can do or not do. <clears throat> you can really ramp it up as much uh, as you want. The, the uh, consequences might be dire though. Yeah. Get, all, get those control rods out of here. Let's see how hard this puppy can run. Heck yeah. So, we could tangent on storage for a second. There's some pretty damn interesting things there. Uh, actually, I wanted to mention one thing that I was, <clears throat> I've been interested in for a while, but doing some research and was learning a little bit more about not too long ago. So, you know, we have batteries as one form of energy storage. Uh, but storage. there's some, there's some really, uh, you know, hydro that's, you know, potential energy from, unleashing water down into a gener a pump or whatever. Um, well think about like stored, you could, you can store like mechanical energy, like a flywheel. So you could like, let's say you had a huge ass flywheel that you had a bunch of, uh, solar power and you didn't need all of it right then. So you have this big electric motor that spools up this huge flywheel that could be like millions of pounds and you let that thing spin with its own kinetic energy. You'll have some losses due to friction, whatever supporting that load, like bearings or whatever. And then from there, when you need that power, you just clutch that thing to a freaking generator and you start burning power and it'll start sucking energy and it'll slow down that flywheel. But, uh, you can store energy that way. It's pretty that's interesting. That's really fucking awesome. Uh, <laughs> that's no, that's wild. really, that's really interesting and cool. I've never thought of that. So, so, so when the sun is is basically transferring energy to that flywheel, it's spinning very slowly like this, but it's so heavy at the, especially at the outside where, um, um, where that energy is easily transferable the most, um, that it's just spinning like this. And then when you need it, um, you can again apply the clutch to transfer that energy via like a starter motor in a car um to a turbo to to something that's gonna that's like an alternator that's gonna make actual electricity or energy like that yeah um exactly it's yep. really cool i'm looking because like so here's the thing is like it's really this is a this is relevant um i have uh i have like 
I think 12 solar panels in my house um, above wow. me. I there do. Yeah, it came with them. Um, and they produce in the winter like two kilowatts per hour. It's not a whole lot. That's like on average. It's like that's kind of nothing. In the summer, in the summer, it's like 16 to 20. Um, but in the winter, but the thing is with the electrical, with the like our, like national grid or whoever you have, it, they kind of screw you because it's not like that goes directly into powering the lights. That that power my, my solar panels produce pulls in here, then goes right to the company. And then I get a credit for it. And then it gets applied to my electrical bill. Nice. Um, so, so if shit hit the fan for real, um, I'd have to do some sort of crazy conversion to convert these solar panels into a storage situation, which would be batteries in my basement to be able to utilize that power. So they do nothing for me if, like, if I really, if I actually need them. Um, it's really weird. So having something power a motor that's a again a couple million pound flywheel is a such a cool <laughs> idea i think it's awesome like not that i can do that i mean i don't need a couple hundred this two kilowatts an hour isn't powering a million pound flywheel it's not happening but um but that's such a no fun but you way don't need to, uh, to, cons- to don't, preserve energy yeah you don't need a million pounds so like the uh, you remember back to our kinetic energy equation so for rotational mass it's the same thing it's just the rotational energy times the mass of the object so if you want to store enough energy for a grid, you need a million pound flywheel or whatever that math mm-hmm. ends up being. But for a personal home, you maybe only need a few hundred pounds or less. I don't know. You could, yeah. it's, it's easy. It's easy math to do, but, um, uh, so that's one way. I'll, math to do. Well, it, you know, it, you can, you can look, it's, it's, it's multiplication. You just have to know what the equation is, but, uh, the other, there's another way, there's another cool way too that I was actually saw that someone's doing. So, uh, they have a crane that when the solar, when they have solar power coming in, they'll hoist blocks of concrete and they'll stack blocks of concrete. And then when they need the power, they'll unstack the block and they'll use the gravitational energy to power oh, yeah. a generator. Isn't that badass? That's yeah. badass. It makes so much sense. It makes, it just makes too much sense. It's too good for us. Dude, it's crazy. All, all we need to do, like, so the the whole, it's simple, like in, you can say in plain English, like what we're trying to do, but then like to find the best way to do it in practice is obviously like the challenge. So all we're, you know, we're trying to extract energy from something somehow as cheaply and easily as possible. And then, store it if we have to, to meet our demands or use it right then, if we can have a good way to store it and then a good way to use it. Uh, so nuclear can create it. We find some, whoever, whoever figures out the best way to store energy is going to kill every other country for energy forever. I mean, it's going to be insane and it probably won't be batteries to be honest. Eventually it'll be something else, something that no one knows about. Yeah, you're you're like as we mentioned early on, your net energy is really the secret here. Is that um, energy in equals like so many more times energy out, um, and that's what brings us to fusion. Is that that's like a almost an infinite cycle of energy. Yeah, um, in and out. I, I think that's an interesting point to show how energy converting it, in our minds you might think it's different, like burning fires and pushing rocks and solar power, those are all different ways of getting energy. 
it's all the same concept. And Andrew just showed right there how it can be transferred. I mean, obviously, there's a loss in the system, like the entry we talked about earlier, but it can be transferred over and you can see it in the real world. It, it's an actual thing. You can take a flywheel or stacks of concrete and transfer that kinetic energy over into the same electric energy that you can if the sun's beating down or if you're enacting a nuclear fission reaction. It's, it's always blows my mind that you can literally transfer them over in a similar fashion. The math works out just great. Well, it's crazy. I just look at like, um, <clears throat> for example, I don't know if you guys can see here, but like that's my heating system. I have baseboard uh, water heating. <laughs> so this, this uh, thing, which is like a, a great Burnham system, um, heats up water, stores it in the tank on the, on the left there that you can't, uh, you can see right here. And then that water, when on demand, I turn my thermostat up, goes into my radiators and heats the house. It's like, it's just crazy that this is still how this is done. Like that, that's perfect analogy though, for on demand energy. I and mean, every time you like, had to light fire to have a hot shower, it would be a lot more inefficient than having that store of hot water for whenever you need it. To actually utilize it yeah exactly yeah, and, and they and actually has, and that's always seeping out energy at every second i mean that thing's like insulated to fuck yep. but like it's still every every time that the second it goes in there is the second it starts getting cooler um they yeah, have yep. on demand Those... they have on demand hot water heaters called like like navi and yeah. brand but like yeah but that that's cool i actually support this but they're a lot of money i I just bought this house. I don't care, but um, but it's this, it's the same it's the same challenge that I'm facing inside of my basement as the world is facing with storing energy as a whole, which Andrew is kind of gonna has been talking about. Yeah. Yep. That's right. That's a good way to relate it back. So, yeah. I mean, basically, my main point was kind of just circling back through this whole conversation of is nuclear power the best way to create that energy or a good way that can coexist with other good ways to generate the power that we need to live? So, and I think so, because basically, you know, what we've discussed throughout this whole, you know, topic is basically you have so much energy density and potential with nuclear as compared to many other forms of energy. So it just is an obvious choice. And if we can, continue to develop the technology, reduce the amount of, you know, threat in terms of safety when it, like for meltdowns, how we can dispose of uh, the waste when we're done, uh, we'll be able to use it uh, effectively. So, yeah. so before you, people, sorry, God. So an alternative to uranium that they found in uh, nuclear fission power plants, even though we're not building them that often now is uh, thorium, which is another element. It's a cousin to uranium. It's not as radioactive and the, the problems with it are actually the benefits with it. I mean, it's more abundant than uranium in the entire planet. We haven't developed reactors to work this way, but it works just as much in concept. Uranium-235, its benefit is its chain reaction that's going off wildly, but thorium actually doesn't have the similar chain reaction because it has to have an extra little kick to get going. The reason why thorium isn't as radioactive is because it's natural uh, tendency. You have to add plutonium to the system to, to keep it going. And as soon as you take plutonium away, you don't have that Chernobyl style deal where it's just going off like crazy and you're pumping water and trying to cool it down. All you have to do is remove the plutonium in the system. So they could use thorium in a similar way as they use uranium and they can just remove the thorium from the plutonium. 
immediate shutdown. So you could still have a similar style reactor and have it work just as well. I think that one ton of thorium can produce much more power than uranium. You said earlier that a kilogram of uranium is worth so much coal. One ton of thorium can generate the same power as 200 tons of uranium, which would be the same as using 3.5 million tons of coal. So I just think that's something worth looking into if we're gonna keep using fission as the reactors, which we have been using, maybe it's worth either revitalizing them or building new power plants with thorium. We're gonna keep using fission because it seems like a much more efficient way of doing it and a lot safer. Also the byproducts are about 1,000th of the radioactive waste we'd use with uranium. Yeah, so my, my understanding of why we don't have thorium uh, uh, fission plants is because basically we just, we never developed the technology because we were so focused originally on uh, the atomic bomb race. And so we developed that technology, but since there was no use case for military use for thorium, uh, since it had very little explosive potential, they just right. never really put much development into it. Uh, so even though it probably would be a much better fuel source for these power plants, uh, there's a pretty low likelihood there'll be any development just because most likely we'll leapfrog right over it, right to uh, fusion. So, you know, if like, for example, we discover that it's impossible to create fusion, maybe people would look to development of thorium, but for now it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> Hit the nail on the head, I think. Yeah, that's exactly why. Thorium has very little weaponized uh, uses, which makes it a lot harder to proliferate and develop. I mean, a lot of our technology comes directly from the military. Without the atomic bomb, it's kind of arguable we'd even have power plants that are nuclear fission-based. So that makes a lot of sense why thorium wouldn't be utilized more widely. It, it's the same reason you brought up earlier, Andrew. If you don't have the funding of the research, then it doesn't matter if it's going to work or not on paper, we're not going to do it. Which brings us to our final topic, so we can wrap it up, which is fusion, which seems to be the wave of the future. I mean, we talked about earlier where it's power in versus power out, right? And if you're wondering how much uranium we have on the planet or how much coal we have on the planet, I can guarantee you we have a lot more hydrogen on the planet because hydrogen is the most common element in the entire universe by far. It's everywhere, it's all around, it's usually attached to things, but. <laughs> If we can get hydrogen atoms to fuse together, we can produce so much more energy than fission. And like Dylan was saying, there's a couple of reactors going on right now that are projects being put on. I mean, the, the biggest one is the ITER, which is going on by multiple countries and developing a fusion reactor. Um, they're all working and together to do it because. I wanted to just point out that it's in a small, 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 small town in France called. Uh, please excuse me. It's called <laughs> if I, Catarache Province Alpes Cote de Azur. And they picked a small, a small town in the middle of fucking nowhere um, because it's better than being in Paris to have a the sun in a box. <laughs> That's exactly right. You gotta have it somewhere, right? I mean, people are nervous, obviously, but it, it always blows my mind the amount of countries that are working on it, which it, it brings a little spirit to my heart 
people are trying to do this. I mean, it seems like the ultimate form of energy. If you can, if you can actually sustain a fusion reaction, not only is it more safe, the, the resources are unbelievable. And the in-out factor, which we're talking about this whole time, is out of control. I mean, we have China, the US, Japan, Russia, South Korea, France, Kazakhstan, and 25 others all working on the iTurf project. And I, I think it's a, a lot um, based on what we're going to do in the future. But wait, China has their own thing going on, and they have leapfrogged ahead of France with, I think it's called EAST, which is, yes, uh, the Experimental Advanced Superconducting Tokamak. And it's the same goddamn thing. It's officially called the HL2M, um, which is uh, in Chinese means, uh, well, no, 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 no. Um, in <laughs> layman's terms, it just means artificial sun. They call it the artificial sun, but it has an like a alphanumeric acronym. Um, but that's what they're doing. And they that broke news in popular science like this year, popular mechanics, one of the two. Um, the, the French one, the whatever the hell you call that, um, has been, yeah, has been in development for, for, for many years. And so is the Chinese one, but they kind of came out with this first that they, it's not that big um, where they can do fusion and to have something that goes to 350 million degrees and be able to sustain that with, with like metals and stuff like that to not melt down. But it's basically like a particle accelerator that goes, goes like this in a tube. That's not that big. You see it on the Simpsons or you see it on, um, uh, pardon me, um, I think uh, even like Stranger Things, the, that movie even had some sort of a situation like this where it's a big donut shape. And that's what we're looking at here when it comes to um, fusion reactors. They're donut shaped particle accelerators that move like this. China, France and the whole like essentially UN did it first. And then China um, uh, has been doing their own thing. And that is specifically that HL2M, Tama, Takamak. Just want to throw that in there. I mean, yeah. yeah, thank you. Yeah, the problem with fusion reactors is exactly what we're talking about the whole time. <clears throat> the concept is great in, in theory. If you can get it to work, you can have exponentially more energy than you put in or than the resources and time put into the system. But as of right now, the conditions that are required in order to make fusion work take so much more energy than you can produce in the core that it's just completely unfeasible right now. I mean, the amount of money you have to dump in for this thing to work is astronomical, but it's the same it takes for fission. It just takes a lot of effort and a lot of money. Right now, they have to use superconductors and high-powered magnets to try to recreate the amount of energy and heat that takes place inside the sun. Like we said earlier, it takes all of that energy and pressure. We have to recreate it on Earth in a very tiny spot, which makes uh, the fusion reactors that are being experimented on simultaneously the coldest and hottest place on the planet at the same time because they need to chill the superconductor cables down to degrees that you'd measure in kelvin because of the amount of heat that would be exchanged in the system it would be immense so they need to chill the superconductors down well below anything you could observe in nature they need to heat it up to the core of the sun so within you know, a thousand foot radius, we have the coldest place on earth and the hottest place on earth in the same system, trying to make this mm -hmm. reaction keep working, which unfortunately now it takes so much energy to create the environment for fusion to be possible, not feasible for actually producing more energy for us. But And to stabilize that shit, you have to use uh, magnetic fields to stabilize the plasma that is created during this whole process, which is like totally unnatural where 
uh, it's totally wild, but it's not unnatural because the sun does the same thing, but it's just really insane. So um, nowhere seen on Earth. It happens all where, everywhere in the universe, but it never happens here. So it is unnatural to us because it's crazy. But according to uh, just to add us up to quantum physics, um, anything's possible, Joe. Everything is possible, man. And can happen anytime. Anything anywhere. is possible. Woo! And you can have. Uh, you know, you know who that is, just... right? Kevin Garnett. Yes, Anything Kevin possible. Garnett. Anything's possible. <laughs> we were all parade. The last time we won the fucking championship was back when we couldn't even drive ourselves to the fucking parade. Right. <laughs> Fucking wrap it up. So let's uh, let's we'll, we'll, sure, let's, let's finish with Andrew because he's our expert. So um, since I know, I think the least about this whole thing, I think that I'll start with me. We'll go to Joe. We'll go to Andrew. I think that um, yeah, there's no way around this being the future. It's just clear as um, pollution lack of energy energy in should equal more than energy out which would be your net gain um this type of thing it just makes sense and if fission is kind of shitty and anybody who's played fallout knows that that is that's not a good idea it's not good and if you've seen any movies about the fuck ups it's just really fucked up and then same with obviously the problems with again uh five mile three mile three mile island five mile three mile three big old three three mile island um uh fukushima and uh chernobyl which for those of you who haven't gone to hbo to watch that just fucking do it it's the best show i've ever seen in my whole life um it's a goddamn mess so to move from fission which is everybody has seen those towers we've all been in in contact with or not in contact just been around fission technology it's it's scary it's terrifying fusion sounds like fusion sounds scary because china has the sun in a box but um when you actually look at the facts which is the best way to make a decision or be figure out what you'd be scared about it's not that scary um unlimited energy for the world just makes sense um it's our one of our biggest challenges our biggest pollutant so on and so forth so on to you, Joe. What do you think about what the hell is going on? Uh, yeah, I think you just wrapped it up perfectly. I couldn't agree more. It's the concept of energy in versus energy out, like we said, the sustainability of it. And it has to do with the concept of people's, their minds are so pinned on the, the ideas of it because the horrific nature of not only radioactive meltdown like that happened in Chernobyl and could have happened much worse in Fukushima or you still can't visit within hundreds of miles of the event happening. It sticks in people's minds. I mean, it's, it's a horrifying thing. It's an awful way to go. We're tampering with things that happen within the center of stars and within science understanding. I mean, obviously, it's freaking people out. And that, along with its direct coupling with warfare and weapons, makes people in, immediately freaked out by the idea. But I think that you nailed the concept that it, it's easier to deal with people's riling up in their emotions and it is to deal with the cold hard facts and the cold hard facts are that even with chernobyl and fukushima three mile island another disaster that happened in russia that was a partial meltdown you add that together with the nuclear bombs that have been dropped as testing and the bombing of fukushima or shit <laughs> the bomb <laughs> we bomb uh. fukushima next year no the bombing of <laughs> hiroshima and nagasaki 
it's still responsible for way, way less deaths than coal energy and natural gas. I mean, the amount of people that die just producing and harvesting coal is more than anyone who's ever died in a nuclear accident in the entire history of the world. And going forward, the actual repercussions for nuclear power, hopefully we get into fusion, which is a lot uh, cleaner and produces more energy. But even with fission alone, it just, the, the, the circumstances are there. If there's money there, it's taken care of properly, it's easier, it's cleaner, and it's safer, even though it doesn't seem that way, than any other type of energy. And I think that that is the future. And I think it's worth it to keep looking into it, even with the disasters that have happened and the disasters that will no doubt happen in the future with fusion, I still think it's worth not fearing away from these new ideas because there's so much potential there. And if you take a step back and look at what other energy sources are doing in the earth, it's going to be pretty obvious which one was better, you know, 100, 200 years down the road. Hell yeah. Awesome, Joe. Yeah, totally agree with, and you touched on, uh, you touched on some of the points I was definitely thinking here. So for me, I definitely believe nuclear has a place in our time horizon. Problem is how much time do we have? So for me, the question is kind of fission versus fusion. Not that we have to pick one over the other. We can definitely do both at the same time. However, I would say given how proven uh, fission has been versus the unproven nature of fusion, I think we need to get started now with just getting going with some fission plants so we can start getting power now. We can start helping, you know, drive us out of this nuclear winter that we have. Well, not new. That's probably not the right time to use nuclear winter. <laughs> but uh, drive us out of these, like, potential Arctic conditions if we keep destroying our planet. So, uh, you know, I, I want us to definitely invest a bunch of in, in our current technology and develop that so we can get from A to B. And then, you know, we can hopefully in that time frame get fusion off the ground and get to a point where energy is no longer even a question of, uh, you know, resource and a question of hardship. Who can who can afford it? Who can't afford it? How do we get it? Uh, it'll just be plentiful. <clears throat> Right. It's the next step to being a like a level one society, and um, again, uh, those those levels of society are about uh, how many natural resources you consume and and how much pollution you make. And and the closer we get to being net zero on those type of things, the the closer we are to being a actual sustainable world, Earth, planet, so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, if anything, we've learned from the discussion of fission and fusion is that within a brick of uranium or within a cup of salt water, you can produce the same amount as millions of gallons of crude oil or tons of coal. I mean, the potential is there. The energy is all around us. It's only the lack of resources and understanding and putting it in practice that's, that's stopping us from getting this energy. I mean, the energy is all around you. I'm looking at a cell phone, I'm looking at a table, that strong nuclear force is there. If we can just utilize mm -hmm. that in the proper way, we have as much energy in our homes now to split those atoms as we would digging up every dead dinosaur that ever existed. I mean, it's right there. It's or even point. worse, even worse is like, we forget to mention, um, people used to heat their homes with fucking whale oil, whale blubber. I mean, like that's fucking insane. So talk about being a level like 900, 
900 society is that you kill whales to extract their fat that they naturally develop to survive into things, then burn that. Like, what a fucking mess. But that was two, that was 100 years ago, not even. So Yeah, um, that's cr- it, that is a mind-blowing point. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> People used to fucking do. And it used to, it used to actually happen. I, I, I literally, my house, this basement right here, um, is, is, uh, is technically in an area called like Blubber Way. Like, <laughs> I'm not <laughs> shitting you, dude. You have, to, you have to go down some dark holes to research this type of things. But like, but I, this is a factory area. There was a lot of factories here and they, they per- took in whales and produced whale oil for, like the before pre kerosene uh, type of oil from whale blubber, like it's fucked. But that's that was not that long ago, and we're at a point where that that's that's fucking the whole thing up big time. Taking in whales and turning them into energy is what we is not even what we started as. That was just a hundred <laughs> years ago. And now we're at a point where we're taking we're you know using um, you know fission and fusion to to, to keep, make sure the lights stay on with LEDs that produce. Um, I was looking at um, I have Christmas lights and per strand non LED is about thirty dollars a month if you keep on twenty four seven LED is like eighty cents a month per strand compared to twenty dollars per month twenty four seven it's fucking insane so we're like we're making crazy progress um, whether anybody likes it or not the world's going in a good direction I, I generally feel that way there's a lot of fucked up stuff you want to find it. But overall, there's some really cool things regarding energy, and we're we're on that. That's why we have this podcast today. Keep it interesting. Keep it All interesting. Right, we're, we're wrapping up now. Awesome, guys. Thank you so much for uh, listening to another week <clears throat> of the the Dylan and Joe Basement Podcast. We're happy to have on our first guest, Andrew Thrain, who knows a lot more than we do. But we're just happy to have Andrew. Thanks. <laughs> for, I really appreciate yeah. you doing all our bullshit. We appreciate hey, him guys, being thanks. here. I was just going to say thanks so much for having me, guys, and uh, look forward to the next topic that we can uh, we can blow minds with. Did that, but thanks for joining us, guys, to the Dylan and Joe Basement Podcast with our special guest, Andrew Thrain, world-renowned engineer um, out of uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, and potentially and, and also Indiana. Um, you can join us next week for another crazy topic. Who knows what could happen? No one's picked it yet. Um, but uh, without viewers like you, we wouldn't be in business today. And I want to make sure that you guys are uh, are kicking ass like us, and we're just looking forward to the holidays. And um, and again, thanks again, and we'll see you guys in a few days for our next podcast. Have a great day. Um. What exactly did you just say? Because that I, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs>